church. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, it is on page 959. Again, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I invite you to stand with me as we read from God's Word. Starting in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ." For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a foot, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable would bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, 
and I will show you a still more excellent way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this holy word that was just read, and now we pray for the Holy Spirit to accompany the preaching of that word, that your church may be edified and built up in health and in godliness. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, in our series through the book of 1 Corinthians, we've already seen just how troubled this church in Corinth was in Paul's day. We've seen how it's fractured and divided into several camps. We've already looked at the various presenting issues that this church has been disagreeing over. We've covered a number of them in past sermons. But underlying all of those presenting issues has been the persistent claim by some in the church to possess a higher spirituality than others. Either it's because they are a disciple of this or, or that particular leader, or because they have the ability to, to, to manage a li- living a life of celibacy, not seeking marriage, not seeking the marriage bed, or because they could eat food offered to idols with a clean conscience, or because they felt free to cast aside any culturally accepted symbols sig- signaling a, a wife's relationship to her husband. We've seen in the previous chapters all of these presenting issues. And now, here in chapter 12, as it was just read for us, we learn that some in the church saw themselves as more spiritual because they possess more spectacular spiritual gifts, specifically the gift of speaking in tongues. Now, in response to that very divisive attitude, Paul compares the church to a human body. The point of the metaphor here is that Every local church is a visible manifestation of Christ's body. So each church is not just one portion of Christ's body. Put together, we make up the body of Christ. No, every local church manifests the whole body of Christ. And every Christian in a church is a part of that body with an essential role to play and a spiritual gift to employ aimed at the overall health and growth of the body. Of the church. Now, this is not the first metaphor that he's presented to us. There's been other metaphors in this letter. So, for example, uh, the, the, one of the prominent ones came at the end of chapter 9. And there, Paul used the metaphor comparing the Christian life to a race. And in its context, that metaphor of the Christian life as a race was very helpful. But the problem that we have as readers of Scripture is when we tend to mix metaphors. And we mistakenly assume that Christians are in a race that is in a race against one another. Sadly, many churches, like the church in Corinth, are characterized by competitiveness. There's a one-upmanship marking how we relate to each other. We're always, you know, quietly, subtly sizing each other up. You know, feeling good about ourselves because... At least I don't struggle with with that person's particular sin. Or we're feeling bad about ourselves because I I don't seem to measure up to that Christian's godliness. Now, maybe you would never describe your actual relationships with people here in this church as competitive. 
but would you describe it as close? Would you describe it as mutually dependent? Would you describe it as intricately linked and symbiotic? Because that's exactly how you would describe various parts of a human body. Every body part, every organ is intricately linked and inseparable from each other. And yet, that's not often the experience we have of our life in the church. Many Christians think, again, in terms of a race. We're on a race, and this is predominantly an individual race. And yes, on certain days of the week, we might join others in the race, and we might run together for a bit. It's kind of like how some of you, you probably have a jogging club that you've joined. You know, normally you're running on your own, that's your own thing, but then every so often you'll join up with some others and you'll go jogging together. That's often the way we view our Christian lives. It's normally a personal race. It's a, it's a personal relationship with Jesus. That's what it's all about. And occasionally throughout the week, we'll join up with a club. We'll join up, you know, and run with each other for a couple of hours. But then, of course, we'll just part our ways and we'll go back to our solo race, which is really what it's all about. That's how we often see it. And that's the danger, of course, of mixing metaphors. The chapter 9 race metaphor was intended to communicate something. It was intended to communicate the kind of self-discipline, the self-control needed within the Christian life, and it worked there. But it was never meant to be a metaphor to describe the life of a church. The body is a far better metaphor for that. If the church is a body, then the attention is naturally drawn to the whole person and not the individual body parts. So for example, I might be you know, talking to you and looking at you directly in the eyes, but it's not like I, I see you merely as a pair of eyes detached from the rest of your body. I mean, first of all, that, that would be creepy. I still see you as a whole person. Even if I'm looking at you at that moment right in the eyes, I still acknowledge you as a whole. So in the same way, you know, from time to time, the focus might be given to one member of the church, like, like when a preacher is preaching on a stage. But a preacher in isolation is incomprehensible apart from the rest of the church. To focus exclusively on a preacher would be as grotesque as, as staring at a pair of detached eyes. We must never, ever lose sight of the whole church, the church as a whole. And so that's why the body metaphor is so helpful for us, especially in, in combating any kind of comparative or competitive tendencies that we have among us. So keep all that in mind. Keep, keep in mind the underlying problem of, first of all, spiritual pride, which leads to divisiveness in the church. Keep all that in mind as we now consider the presenting issue in chapter 12, that is, uh, the issue of spiritual gifts. So if you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. There's an outline. I've got three points for us. We're going to first consider the source of the very varied gifts in, the, in a church. Second, the parity of the varied gifts in a church. And third, the constructiveness of certain gifts for a church. 
All right, so let's begin by considering the source of the varied gifts that we find within a church. And Paul identifies that source immediately for us in the first three verses. Now, I know at first glance, verses 1 to 3, 1 to 3 kind of seem out of place because you got Paul referring to mute idols and to the fact that when the Spirit of God is empowering someone to speak, they'll never curse Jesus. And on the flip side, only those empowered by the Spirit can confess Jesus as Lord. I mean, what in the world do those three verses have to do with a discourse on spiritual gifts? Well, I think it helps to remember that Paul is responding to a letter that they wrote to him. Now, concerning spiritual gifts signals there that he's raising a topic that they brought up in that letter. Now, an alternative translation, which might even be in your footnotes, would uh, translate that as now concerning spiritual persons. And I actually think that's probably a better translation there, since the more common term for spiritual gifts doesn't actually appear until verse 4. So I think what's happening is that they were writing to Paul in that previous letter about spiritual persons. Who are the real spiritual persons in this church? And of course, some in the church of Corinth saw that having the gift of tongues is a sign of your advanced spirituality. So having that particular spiritual gift means that you are a spiritual person. But Paul, in his whole point here in verses 1 to 3, is that anyone who confesses Christ as Lord ought to be considered a spiritual person, not just those who manifest a particular gift. And so what he's trying to do in those first three verses is to deflate the ego of anyone who's elevating their gift of tongues and returning them to the same level, the same ground level as anyone who confesses Christ, as anyone who shares of the same spirit. We're all equal in that way. Which leads Paul in verses four to six to identify the source of all these varied gifts as, of course, the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 4 again. Now, there are varied gifts, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now, whether he's speaking of gifts, service, or activities, he's really using those terms synonymously. He's they're all referring to spiritual gifts. He's saying that in one church, you're going to find a diversity of spiritual gifts, but it's the same God. It's the same Spirit of God empowering all those gifts. And the point in stressing the Spirit as the same source for all gifts is to stress the foolishness of boasting in any specific gift that you might have. The Greek word in verse 4 for gifts or what we usually call spiritual gifts, that Greek word is the word charisma. And it's where you get the English word charisma. It's also where you get the term the charismatic movement. It's all from this word. And the word in Greek um, uh, uh, for, but in that word, you're going to find the word in Greek for grace, which is the word charis. And so you could really call spiritual gifts, if you want to be literal, grace gifts. They're gifts of grace. So think about it. If the ability to speak in tongues is a gift of grace coming from the Spirit of God himself, then how in the world can you point to that gift and boast about being more spiritual than others who don't have it? It was all of grace. 
You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. It was a gift of grace from God. Notice how starting in verse 8, Paul then gives us a list of all these varied grace gifts. And there's also a list for us later on at the end of the chapter in verse 28. Now let's clarify before we look at these lists that they're not exhaustive. They're just representative. So there are other gifts that Paul or even Peter lists out in other New Testament letters. Now, Paul identifies for us nine gifts, if you look at verses 8 to 10, and then you skip over to verse 28, he's going to mention eight gifts, but you're going to notice that many of them are overlapping with what we find in verses 8 to 10. Now, look with me in verse 8. It mentions there, in verse 8, the utterance of wisdom and the utterance of knowledge. Now, I know some think these two gifts are miraculous in nature, but that would seem redundant with the gift of prophecy, as we're going to consider in a moment, which leads others to think that this is actually referring to the ability to give wise or knowledgeable counsel. Or it perhaps is another way of referencing the gift of teaching, which notice he didn't mention here in verse 8, but he does mention teaching particularly in verse 28, and actually in all of Paul's other lists and his other letters, he always mentions teaching, and so some think this is actually just a reference to teaching. Now, if we are correct in that understanding, that that these two gifts are non-miraculous in nature, then I think we can group them with two other non-miraculous gifts that are found in verse 28. Look there. Uh, That's where he mentions the gifts of helping and administrating. Now, the gift of helping, or the gift of serving, is a gift that you would expect, you know, a church deacon to have that gift and to employ that particular gift on a regular basis. Now, of course, it's not limited to just those who are in the role of a deacon in the church, but it certainly does fit that office. If you're looking for someone to serve in that office, you'd be looking for the gift of helping. The gift of administrating, on the other hand, can be translated as, uh, also in some other translations, the gift of guidance or the gift of leading, because that Greek word refers to the piloting or the steering of a ship. You're guiding, you're leading a ship through troubled waters. So the Greek uh, is indicating here that it has to do with leadership, and so that's why you would expect, perhaps, a church elder to have and to employ this gift as he serves to oversee and lead the church. Of course, it's not a gift limited to elders, but again, it certainly does fit the office. Now, let's be clear here. When we say that the gifts of teaching, helping, and administrating are non-miraculous, what we're not suggesting is that these are merely natural abilities within a person now directed in a, put in a spiritual direction. That's not what we're saying. Paul is not talking here just about mere natural talents. He is talking about a spirit-empowered ability to be exercised in the life of a church. Now, these gifts may not be miraculous. They they may not be impressive to many people, but they're certainly supernatural. They are gifts of the Holy Spirit. They are to be viewed as and used as supernatural gifts. Now, having said that, let's look in verses 9 to 10, and we're going to see here Gifts that are more overtly miraculous in nature. And, and let's be honest, these gifts here are more impressive. I mean, the Corinthians, it's not like they were enamored with the gifts, gift of helps. They weren't dividing 
between each other because of the gift of help. It was, of course, over something as impressive and spectacular as the gift of speaking in tongues. That's what captured their attention. So what are these miraculous gifts? Well, in verse 9, look there, Paul mentions first the gift of faith. Now that right there is not referring to saving faith. We're talking here about an extraordinary faith that enables a believer to trust God in situations where others would tend to doubt. Where others would tend to be skeptical, someone with this gift has an extraordinary, spectacular degree of faith. And after faith, Paul mentions gifts of healing. Now, some say that those gifts of healing aren't miraculous in nature, but just refer to a particular compassion or aptitude for helping the sick to get better. Uh, you know, a gift that you would expect in those who are called to a career in medicine or a career in caregiving. But I think Paul more likely did have in mind a miraculous gift that results in a kind of miraculous healing that, that you would have seen in the Gospels or in the book of Acts. But note here that Paul never speaks of healers being given to the church like he does in verse 28, speak of, of apostles or prophets or teachers being given, meaning that there really is no biblical evidence for the role of a healer in the New Testament church. That is someone who has the power to just you know, go around healing people at will. Now, prophets and teachers, along with apostles, they did have recognized roles in the early church, and that's why they're, they're designated that way, like you see in verse 28. But, uh, and, and, and serving in that particular role, of course, would have required them to have that particular gift. But in the New Testament, we don't see those with gifts of healing serving as regular healers in the church alongside with regular prophets or regular teachers. So I think that's, that's an important note to, to make. And the same could really be said of the, those who have been given the gift of working miracles, like you see there in verse 10. There was no role of miracle worker within the local church in the early church. Even as, yes, some were able to perform miraculous works, it was as the Spirit led them. So in, in the Gospels or in Acts, what these miraculous works would have been would have been things like exorcisms, casting out evil spirits, or other miracles of nature. Now, prophecy. Prophecy in verse 10 and the ability to distinguish between spirits are likely related gifts. Prophecy refers to the ability to offer encouraging insight to others as God spontaneously reveals it to you. And then others in the church have the ability to discern, to distinguish whether that's a prophetic word coming from the Lord or from false spirits. Now, there's so much more that can be said about that, and we actually do have a sermon in a couple of weeks. When we get to chapter 14, we'll talk more about prophecy. But what I want to just clarify here is that because of the spontaneous nature of prophecy, we would say that it is a gift, an ability that is different from preaching or teaching. Because if you think about it, preaching and teaching are the direct result of preparation and study within a biblical text. But in prophecy, God communicates a word directly to the mind of a prophet, not, not through study of a biblical text. And so that's, that's a distinction that you can make between prophecy and preaching or teaching. 
And lastly, look in verse 10. The, gift, uh, the gifts of various kinds of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Now, tongues, we haven't defined it yet, so you may be familiar with what this is talking about. Tongues is referring to the ability to praise God in a language unknown to the speaker. Now, the first manifestation of that was on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where you had visitors to the temple coming from all around the world, and they heard the apostles speaking in tongues, praising God and the works of God in various tongues that each of them could hear in their own native language. Now, in 1 Corinthians, we also learn that sometimes not even the hearers could understand the tongue being spoken. And so that's why God also gifts to the church uh, those who have the ability to interpret tongues so that what is spoken can actually be of benefit to others, which is a huge concern of Paul's that we're going to consider in a moment. Now, those are the gifts that he lists out. And I'm sure some of you are wondering right now, you're probably asking yourself, okay, that's interesting and all, but are these miraculous gifts still given to the church today on a normative basis? Should we be still seeing these things happening among us? Now, of course, I'm not talking here about the question of whether or not specific instances of miraculous healings or prophetic words or the speaking of tongues could happen in specific sporadic uh, moments. Few Christians, I think, today would insist on an absolute blanket cessation of all miraculous works today. Most would affirm that yes, God still performs miraculous deeds in his miraculous ways. But the question is, are these miraculous gifts still to function normatively in the church today like you would expect the gifts of helping or the gifts of teaching? Well, that's a debated question among Christians. And I know some of you are still trying to figure out what you believe. What's your position on that? And sorry to disappoint, but we're not going to dive into that today. And I'm not, the goal here is not to answer that particular question. That's because it's not the main point of the text. And that's why it's not going to be the main point of this sermon. Remember, expository preaching. That's the approach that we have here. So I do want to recommend we do have a systematic theology course that you can attend. And we are going to cover that next quarter when we get to pneumatology. That is the, the study of the spirit. But all I want to say today is that this debate hinges on how you define these abilities. Did gifts of healing refer to the kind of kinds of healings that took place in the Gospels or the book of Acts, where the lame can walk, the blind can see, the deaf can hear, even the dead are raised? Those who say, yes, that's the kind of gift of healings that the New Testament is referring to, then they would also suggest it's ceased. Today, that doesn't happen today. Now, those who say, no, 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 that, that, that's too limited of a definition, they're the ones that are going to say, no, the gift of, gifts of healing continue, even though they would, the claims today are um, less spectacular in nature than what you saw in the Gospels. Now, that's for that, that gift. Second question, are the words of New Testament prophecy to be considered inspired and authoritative like the words of Old Testament prophecy. Those who say yes would suggest these gifts have ceased. Those who say no think the gift of prophecy continues in our day, but prophetic words are fallible 
and they need to be judged and weighed because of the fallible nature. Another question. Is the spoken tongue a human language unknown to the speaker, if that's all we're talking about, or does it include what are known as ecstatic utterances? Uh, uh, now, those who insist it has to be a human language would suggest that these gifts have ceased today. But those who would include ecstatic utterances with no discernible language pattern would say the gift continues. So that's, that's kind of what it hinges on. And, and, you know, if you want to, we could discuss and, and talk more about that in another context. But what I hope you see this morning is that answering those questions are not actually essential to understanding this passage. The point that Paul is making is that all of these gifts, if they are given to the church, they are apportioned to us by the Holy Spirit. That's the point. Look at verse 11. All these, all these gifts, are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And if that's true, then why you possess a particular spiritual gift has less to do with you and your maturity of faith or your degree of spirituality. It has far more to do with the Spirit and with his sovereign will as he gives you gifts as he chooses. Remember how back in chapter 1, verse 7, in, in, in one of the early sermons in this series, we saw there that the Corinthians were described as not lacking in any gift. And yet, we have seen time and time again how immature and troubled this church can be. So clearly, you can have all the spiritual gifts and still lack spiritual maturity. So why in the world would you be boasting in your gifts? Spiritual gifts are not a sure indicator of spiritual maturity. That's the message being sent here. That's what you can take home. Which leads to our second point, the parity of the varied gifts in a church. This, of course, is referring to the equal status, the parity of all of these gifts, which is particularly highlighted in that body metaphor that Paul gives us that runs from verses 12 to 26. So let me just read verses 12 to 13 again. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So what Paul's saying here is that the church of Corinth is made up of all sorts of people with all sorts of backgrounds, but they all share in common the same spirit. And more specifically, the same baptism of the spirit. That's, that's what it means when it says we were all made to drink of one spirit. Talk about the baptism of the spirit, which is what happens at your conversion when you became a Christian, when you in your non-Christian state, when you received the good news of what Jesus Christ has accomplished in his life and death and resurrection, making possible the forgiveness of your sins and, and making possible the gift of eternal life, when you receive that, when you believe that by grace through faith, you in that moment were regenerated. You were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you're baptized into the Spirit, 
you're baptized at the same time into the body of Christ. So that when, after that, you are then at some point baptized by water into the membership of a church as we witness today with Michael and Grace, you're publicly demonstrating in your water baptism the reality of your spirit baptism into the body of Christ. Water baptism puts on display your spirit baptism. That's what we were just witnessing earlier. Now let's keep reading on in verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And Paul goes on making you know, similar points in the, in, the, in the following verses. And it's a very straightforward point. Every body part is important. Every body part needs to function as designed for the optimal health and growth of the body. And in the same way, every member of the church is equally important. And we all need to serve. We all need to use our gifts in order for the body of Christ to grow and to mature and to achieve optimal health. So we shouldn't think that we are less a part of the body or a less important member of the body because we don't have you know, this impressive gift or I don't have that prominent role in the church. To think like that would be like a foot complaining that it's not a hand or an ear being dejected because it's not an eye. Paul reminds us that God is the one who chose to give you your particular grace gift. So don't fear that you've been overlooked. And don't despair over what he has given you. Listen to verse 18. Verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. He's saying here, imagine if you were, if, if, if we were all comprised of just one body part, like if, if you were all eye or all ear, like not only, again, is that, is that creepy and kind of grotesque, you obviously can't function as a body. I mean, you can't thrive, you can't grow. You know, how are you going to eat anything? How are you going to you know, digest anything? You're going to die, is what he's saying. That is why, friends, it's not healthy for a church to be filled with members all possessing the same set of gifts or all pursuing after the same ones. I mean, here at HCC, I think it's fair to say that we value biblical teaching. We value teaching, but man, it would be unhealthy if we all had the gift of teaching or if that's all we emphasized and pursued after in this church. A healthy church is going to have a diversity of gifts spread out among its members and will encourage everyone to use your particular gift for the common good, as Paul puts it in verse 7. So in Corinthian, in, in, in Corinth, there were some using their gifts instead to you know, build up their egos, build up their reputations, build up their platform or influence. But Paul, on the other, other hand, insists that is not what your gift is for. Your gift is for building up the church. It's for contributing to the health and growth of the body. That's what you're using it for. 
And friends, that's the vision of a healthy, unified church that we want to see lived out here at HCC. It's a beautiful picture where every member recognizes the importance of every other member and, and the gifts that everyone has to contribute to the health of the body. It's about knowing just how much we truly do need each other. Listen to verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Skip on down to, to verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members, listen to this, that the members may have the same care for one another. That's what we want to be. We want to be a church that doesn't play favorites, a church that doesn't elevate those who have impressive gifts, but instead shows the same care for one another, regardless of, of who you are. It doesn't matter if, if your gifts land you on stage behind a mic or in the nursery holding a crying baby. Everyone is honored. Everyone is cared for. Look at verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member's honored, all rejoice together. That right there is a picture of a mutual, interdependent relationship between members of a church where one of us suffers, man, we all suffer. And you know how that works in a body, right? I mean, man, when, when your tooth hurts or when you stub your, your little pinky toe, it's small, it's a little small part of your body, but man, that pain is felt throughout the entire body and it affects your entire mood for the rest of that day. That's how the body works. Is that how our church works? When a member is suffering, when a member is going through a difficult season in life, are we suffering with them? Are we grieving with them? Are they being cared for with the same care that you might show to a more prominent member of the church, like a pastor? The care you'd give to me, are you giving it to every single other member of the church? On the flip side, Paul says in a healthy church, when one of us is honored, we all rejoice. The honor is shared by the entire body. And it's well-deserved because behind the scenes, you have to realize that so many body parts were involved to make that honorable moment happen. I mean, just think about how that works in the body. Like, for example, if, if we were to praise someone for having a really good voice, man, you have a great voice. Man, I love it when you sing. Now, which part of the body do we usually direct that honor? Is it you know, to the lips? Maybe to the mouth? That's probably because that's the most visible body part to us, either, you know, lips or mouth. But you need to realize that for a good voice to be produced and to be heard by everyone requires so many other body parts to be working in harmony behind the scenes. Praise should also go to the tongue, the, the literal tongue, uh, to the voice box that holds your vocal cords, to the throat, to the windpipe, to the lungs, to the diaphragm. I mean, unless all those parts are working together, you're never going to hear that good voice roll off those lips. That's the point. So if there's anything honorable happening, you know, here on this stage, let's share that honor with everyone working behind the scenes. In the AV booth, you know, behind the camera, 
ushering at the door, watching your babies or teaching your kids so that you can be here to worship. Nothing praiseworthy happens up here without them and their gifts being exercised in this church. Now, Paul wraps his argument up in verses 27 to 30 by basically saying that all Christians receive some of these gifts, and no Christian receives all of these gifts. Therefore, every part of the body of Christ needs each other and needs each other to be serving. And every member, every member should have the mindset of that I've got a contribution to make to the health and growth of this body, I'm going to use this gift that God in his wisdom chose to give me, to give to me, I'm going to use it for others, for the building up of this church. So no one should think less of themselves because they don't have a certain gift. Or no one should think more of themselves because, they, because of the gift that they do have. And don't treat others who do have a certain gift as more important in the church or as as more spiritual than others. And don't look down on those who lack that gift as less important or less spiritual. That's the point that Paul's been trying to drive home, which has been based on the fundamental parity or equality of all the varied gifts in a church. No one gift is better than another. But then he concludes this chapter with a statement that seems to upend his entire argument. And that leads us to our third and final point here. The constructiveness of certain gifts for a church. Listen to verse 31. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Now, what in the world does Paul mean by higher as in higher gifts? Because isn't he just contradicting himself? Didn't he just explain to us in 30 verses how there is no one gift better than another? Well, I think it's safe to say that Paul is not suddenly reversing himself. When he encourages us to earnestly desire the higher gifts, he means higher not in terms of a higher importance for the one who's using that gift, but in terms of what is most edifying, what is most constructive for the entire church. No gift is meant to prop you up or to, prop up or to build up your ego, but some gifts, according to Paul, do more directly build up others whenever the church gathers together. So, In writing to a church that is so enamored by tongues, Paul is going to go on to argue in chapter 14 that between the two, prophecy is actually a higher gift than tongues and that they should desire prophecy more than tongues. But again, it's not because those who can prophesy are better or more important than those who speak in tongues, but only because, as he's going to explain, You can directly edify the church with prophecy without the need for interpretation of that tongue. So that's why he's saying one is higher or more edifying than the the other when the church comes together. Now, lest anyone should think, well, great, but what if I don't have either of those gifts, right? Or what if those gifts have ceased for today? So I don't have access to higher gifts. Well, if you're thinking that, don't worry. That's why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13. 
There he's going to tell us the most excellent and the most edifying of all the spiritual gifts, which of course is love. The love of God is a gift given to every single believer, which makes love the highest and the greatest gift that we have at our disposal for the edification and growth of the body. So brothers and sisters, I hope you come away from this recognizing that you have been given a spiritual gift that you are expected to employ for the common good of this church. Now, maybe you're not exactly sure what that gift is and you're trying to figure out, what what, what is my gift? Well, you know what? The best way to find out what your gift is is to start serving. Get involved. I mean, we had the ministry fair a few weeks ago. If people are following up with you, inviting you to serve, say yes. Just get involved. Start serving. And and you usually discover your gifts as you begin to use them. But then you might be thinking, but what if it turns out I committed myself to this, you know, responsibility, and it turns out I don't actually have that gift. Oh, no, what am I going to do? Well, you can rely on the gift of love, which I'm sure if you are a believer, you have the gift of love. It's at your disposal. That's Paul's answer to you if you worry about not having the right gift. If you serve with love, you're going to make a huge contribution to the health and growth of this body. Let me encourage you with that thought as we conclude in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this text. I know it does still raise a lot of questions, uh, but Lord, I pray that what it does is inspires us more to serve, to use the gifts you've given us for the good of this church, for the good of your kingdom work around in this city and around this world. We thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.